Romans chapter 1, verse 14. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. And Father, we thank you for your word. Help us now as we work our way through it. And we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen. So as we're, we're concluding the introduction of, of Romans, and in this section, really ties together the whole emphasis, the point of why Paul writes Romans. The theme is the gospel. Going back to verse 1, Paul defines himself as being set apart for the gospel of God. In verse 9, he says that he serves in his spirit the preaching of the gospel of his son. In verse 15, he says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. And then in verse 16, he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So the gospel is key in Paul's thinking. Uh, Today's section, we see three things in verse 14, verse 15 and verse 16. Paul says, I am, I am, I am. Uh, Many have said that this section is Paul's testimony as it relates to the gospel. And so. Looking at this, I thought that the most important thing is to sort of back up, um, to look at the basics. Paul speaks of the gospel, but he doesn't define the gospel necessarily at this point. He's setting it up to, to, to spell out what the gospel is, to write out exactly what the gospel is in a lot of chapters. But I thought it would be important to back up and ask ourselves, what is the gospel? Everyone who follows Christ should be able to answer this question in one or two sentences in a very clear and concise way. The clearest definition of the gospel is found in Romans, I mean, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you would turn one book towards the back, it goes Romans to Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul, the same author, he is writing this church at Corinth. It's the church where he writes Romans from. And there was all kind of problems in the church. Uh, the gospel had become distorted. And in verse chapter 15, he begins to explain, well, this is the essence of the gospel. In verse 1 of chapter 15, he says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which you also received in which you also you stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast to the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Here it is, verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Point one of the gospel. What is the gospel? That Jesus died for my sins according to the scriptures. It's not a New Testament thing. It begins all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 where the promise of Christ's coming would happen. So the first point is 
that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried, that he was dead. It wasn't a facade. It wasn't an illusion that God pulled off. Jesus was dead. The Romans uh, were the best executioners that the world has ever known. They confirmed without a doubt that Jesus was dead, dead, dead. They pierced his side with the sword to affirm that he was dead. There was no flinching. There was no anything. The other two soldiers, their legs were broken to speed the process. But Jesus was different from them in that he suffered a horrible beating in the process to the cross. And so there he was dead. They took him out and they they prepared his body and they took him to the tomb where he remained for three days. And then he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So he didn't stay dead. On the third day, he rose from the grave and he conquered death. That is the gospel in a nutshell that Jesus died, he was buried, and he rose again. And this happened for our sins, according to the scriptures. He goes on to say, because we naturally think Jesus died. People don't just die and come back to life. If they come back to life, they weren't really dead, is what I think. I hear about it all the times of people telling the stories of, oh, I was dead. I flatlined. I was dead. You weren't dead because you came back. You were just everything. All systems just stopped for a little bit. And we thought you were dead, but you weren't really dead. But I'm a skeptic. So I've called myself skeptimistic. I'm not only a skeptic, but I'm very pessimistic. But I doubt anything I read or see. I question it. And Paul knew this because he was right there with me. Or I should say I was right there with him. He goes on to say in verse 5 that he, that's Jesus, appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, to the, then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now. So as Paul writes this, he said, listen, he appeared to 500 people. Most of them are still alive. You can go talk to them and get their eyewitness testimony that they saw him. They touched him. They felt him. He indeed rose from the grave. Then he appeared to James. Then to the then to all the apostles. And last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of all the apostles, not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God within me. So Paul goes through this this whole story of the gospel. This is the gospel. The message I preach to you saints in Corinth was that Jesus died for your sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He rose again. Don't let people get you off track. He appeared to all of these people and then he appeared to me. Remember, after all of this was done, Jesus had ascended into heaven. Paul is persecuting the church. And on that road to Damascus, the Lord Jesus steps out of heaven and appears before Paul. Not just once he appeared to him in his court trial and he showed himself to Paul to transform this this very elite Jewish man to change, change the course of his life. So that's. What the gospel? Now, the question is, why the gospel? Paul just sort of lays out the facts here. Why why did Jesus do all of this? 
The most well-known verse about this is John 3.16. So if you'll turn back to John chapter 3. <clears throat> this is a verse that I, I don't hear pages turning because we've so memorized this verse that, that we sort of blow it off. It's almost inoculated us. <clears throat> but in John 3.16, the story unfolds that Nicodemus, the high the, the priest, comes to Jesus in the night from the Sanhedrin. He's a leader of the leaders. And he has some questions for Jesus. He recognizes that the things that Jesus says and does, he has to be from God. And so he starts talking with Jesus. And in the midst of this conversation, probably let's, let's back up to verse 14. Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... Remember, the snakes were going by and they were getting bit by snakes. And the way to to survive the the snake bite was to go by faith and look up at the stick that had Moses' serpent up on it. And by looking at that, their faith healed them. So Jesus relates back to the story and he says, even so must the son of man be lifted up, speaking of his death on the cross. And he said that so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. This is wonderful news. Some have called it the good news, the gospel. Then verse 16, for God so loved. In the Greek, it starts with the emphasizing the word love comes first, that this love of God is so powerful and so compelling that God so loves the world. The world that has been separated from God through sin. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever. Not just the elect. Not just certain groups of people. Whoever. All people. That whoever believes in him shall not perish. But have eternal life. This is the why. That. The what is that Jesus died, he was buried, and he rose again on the third day, according to scriptures, to make payment for our sins. The reason that this happened, the why this happened, is because God's love for humanity was so great. It's overwhelming that God loves me, that he loves you, that before you were born, long before you were born, he had you on his mind, and that Jesus on the cross, as he was dying as the wrath of god was being placed upon him it was out of his great love for you for me this is a thing that uh, brings tears to my eyes and in believing upon him we have eternal life for god did not send the son into the world to judge the world but that the world might be saved through him this is powerful This is what the gospel is. And so as we turn back to Romans chapter one, Paul's been introducing himself to the Romans. He he's trying to let them know who he is. He's informing them of his doctrine, what he believes. He's building the case so that he he longs to see them, that he could pass through and meet them and take an offering and that they could help him get to Spain to preach the gospel. And here we see Paul's life, his passion, his convictions laid out before them. And he says, I am under obligation both 
to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. In, in the New American Standard, it says under ab- obligation. The, the literal word, which I think the New King James, King James, possibly NIV, there's a couple translations, go off of the original, where it says, I am a debtor to these people, to the barbarian, both to the wise and fool. We'll, we'll look at who these people are. But this idea that he's indebted, that he has a debt, that he's compelled to move forward in this direction. Now, debt has a couple of different terms, or it can be defined in a matter of a couple different ways. We borrow money from a bank, and we're enslaved to the bank until we pay back our debt. That, that's one definition of being indebted. This is not what Paul is intending here. Paul is not paying back God for his salvation, that God saved him, he spared him. And now he's under obligation to do this because he's paying back what God has done. For there's nothing that we could do to pay back. There's another sort of obligation or another sort of debt. Uh, when I went to Israel last time, uh, Marion, she, she, I always forget what it's called, a turducket or sadukkah. I'm like, I'm close. I know, turducken, that's for food, that, which uh, my mind always goes to food. But what she said to me is she's, she said, I want to give some money to go towards, um, she'd seen that I was going to go to a Holocaust survivor's um, home. And she said, I would like this money to go to the home. And, and the idea is that they wouldn't know where it came from, but she knows where it's going, so she can't get any sort of reward for it. And so as I left with this money from San Diego to go to Israel, I was indebted both to Marion to fulfill, because she has really no idea if I, I could have spent it on coffee, which most of you who know me, that's a real threat. <laughs> hey, hey, I'm going to get a bunch of coffee on the way. But I'm indebted for her, to her to carry out this wish. And then I'm also under obligation to those that were receiving these Holocaust survivors that are in their retirement home there in Tel Aviv. It was wonderful like to be able to participate in this sharing of this gift. But that I was constrained. I was under obligation. I was indebted to these, to these two groups. Uh, the Life Application Bible Commentary says this about Paul. It says that he was partly obligated to Christ for being his savior. And he was partly obligated to the entire world. Because it reminded him. Of his former lostness. It's beautiful. And, and since it's the sanctity of human life. One of the things. Just this Sunday. Kind of mixing it up. With the sanctity of human life. The thing that struck me about the staff. And the volunteers at Alternatives Women's Center. Is there are. There certainly are a number of people. Who have had abortions there. That now serve. I am one of them. I've shared. This, is one, this was the whole process of. Really, God dealing with my heart was was coming to terms first with my wife to kind of share an experience that I'd had as a young man and then wanting to then get involved and helped to help. And there there are people that are on staff there. They're the ones who have been involved in abortion, whether directly or indirectly to hear stories of people who said, you know what, in college, I drove my best friend to go get an abortion. To hear a grandparent say, I helped fund my child, abort my grandchild. And then they've come to know Jesus. And they've been 
set free through his grace and his mercy. And they want to share what they've received, this this being there and loving on these ladies. It's a powerful thing to see these people who, who, whether they've had an abortion or not, to be in this environment where they've so experienced the love of God that it's so sweet to them that they want to share, they want to honor God in service and they want to honor God or by sharing with the people who need the good news. And so Paul says, listen, I'm under obligation to Greeks and to barbarians. So he sets out this, this contrast to the Greeks. This was, these were the people who fell under the culture of the Greco-Roman world. These were the people that had culture. They knew the language. They, were, they wore the right clothes. They, they ran in the right circles. They could tell you all about the movies. Now the barbarians... I see this word and I think of our governor, Conan the Barbarian, this big buff dude that's just unrefined, carrying a sword, cutting people's head off, wearing leather outfits to show his abs and stuff. And I just think of this brutal sort of person. But that's not at all what this word is saying during their time. This was a word in the Greek that was sort of a, oh, what's it? I get my grammar mixed up, but it's a word that the sound sort of implies the meaning. Um, yeah, onomatopoeia, whatever. It's kind of fun to say. <laughs> no, 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 that's that one. It's the one that sounds. It was like sort of ba 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 ba, barbarian. Barbos is the word, and, and this was to make fun of sort of the people that were on the edge of town, the the country folk. The people that didn't fall under the culture of the Greco-Roman world, they were sort of, they were laughed at. They were, had the southern slang, the draw. They didn't understand the things of the time. They were just sort of country folk. They weren't modern. And so Paul, in his second thing, to the wise and to the foolish, we don't need explanation. His point is that the gospel, that he's under obligation to all people. I think it's 1 Corinthians chapter 9 where Paul says, I become all things to all people that I might win some. He wanted people to experience this love, this forgiveness, this God who is so kind. In verse 15, he goes on to say, So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. This eager Kind of, you know what, I'm under obligation, I am a debtor, but it's not burdensome. That I've found the cure to sin, and I get to share the good news. When you find something that works, you just want to share it. Anne always laughs at me because there's two products. I'm forgetting the second one, but the one product I always think of. Man, I would if, if I could talk to the right people... I would so want to be on an infomercial for this one product. I would do it. Folex carpet cleaner. I've had some stains and Folex like takes out everything. There's no stain in my opinion that Folex can't. Christina's in the club. She knows stains. I'm willing to guess. But Folex, when I first discovered this, I just want to tell everybody about Folex. This stuff's great. And you look at the bottle and it's like print from the, the 40s. That somebody used a Sharpie with. It, like, this stuff can't work. No. I would do infomercials for this. you got to. In fact, I'll buy your first jar. Uh, so you can know how good it is. 
when you discover something, you want to share it. And the, the point is, here's Paul, this man who was so enslaved to religion, to obeying the law, that when he experienced Christ, he was transformed. And all he wanted to do was to share about Jesus, that he would give his life doing this, that he would take beatings, hardship, ultimately give his life sharing the good news. Something far greater than even the cure for cancer. This is sin, what separates us for eternity with God. That through Christ, there can be relief. There's forgiveness. There's hope. He goes on to say, verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. It sort of struck me. When we look at Paul's pedigree, he is of the tribe of Benjamin. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He studied under Gamaliel. He had his Roman citizenship by birth. When you look at him, he was a Pharisee. He says as as concerning the law, he was blameless. Before he knew Christ, he would look you in the eye and said, there's no guilt on me from the law. I am without sin. And yet on that road to Damascus, he met Christ, Lord Almighty, And his whole life was turned right side up. I always say it was turned upside down, but we, we apart from Christ are living upside down and God turns us right side up. And then he goes out and he starts sharing Christ. He was ostracized from both groups. The Christians didn't want anything to do with him because they thought it was just a ploy of his. So this Lord that he'd accepted by those that had proclaimed the same Lord said, we don't want anything to do with Paul. We don't trust him. And to those who he was with, they wanted to kill him. How can you switch teams like this? Thinking about Paul on Mars Hill as he went up there before all these snooty Greek philosophers. And, he, and here he is to tell about the Lord Jesus, this hillbilly. As they were going, who are you, you Jewish man coming here? You're not Greek. You're not learned like we are. And yet he stands there to think that he would have within him. I don't think there's any sort of I don't think it's a stretch from the text to think there were times in Paul's life where that that shame like, oh, do I have to do this? But by the time when he writes this letter, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. I remember when I had just become a Christian and I was serving in the SEAL teams. Um, I kind of ended up becoming a pastor because I thought. That when I became a Christian, I had all of these questions and I told myself, well, if I just read through the Bible, all my questions will be answered and I'll be good to go. I can just kind of go through my life. Reading through the Bible brought on more questions, but that's a whole nother story. But I was embarrassed of this, this conversion in my life. It was a struggle for me operating and living as a Navy SEAL in that culture, especially when my nickname in the SEAL teams was Dirty Bird. And the reason my name was Dirty Bird is because I always brought out the wild turkey and I would get everybody blasted like I was one of the worst encouragers. And then all of a sudden it's like, I don't drink anymore. And they're like, what are you talking about? You always buy shots of wild turkey. And I'm like, not anymore. Not anymore, guys. And so as I was reading the Bible, like I didn't have the courage to do it in, in a public area. So during lunch and on breaks, I would zip out to my car out by the O course, the obstacle course. And I would sit out there and I would be reading through the Bible, trying to plug through it. And one day it was time for me to go back to work. And I hopped out of the car 
And as I started to walk, a, a more senior SEAL operator was right there. And he looked at me and he said, oh, no, are you one of those Bible thumpers? No, 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 not at all. Like, and I was trying to tap down. No, no, no. I'm just trying to do some research, trying to figure, you know, nope. And he's like, oh, well, I am. And when he said that, I was like, so, oh, Lord. Yeah, rooster crowed. I was just, and it had one of the biggest impacts in my early life. And so when I see this, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. I tell you, doing work with law enforcement and guys are all for my SEAL background. And then when they start asking, well, what do you believe? It's like, oh, man, it sounds so foolish. I mean, that's biblical, 1 Corinthians. To, to, To those that aren't saved, the gospel's foolishness. But to us who believe, it's the power of God. And so I look at him and I say, yeah, I believe that Jesus, you know, died on the cross. He was buried three days and he did it for my sin. And they're like, really? I'm like, yeah, no, it seems kind of foolish, but try a bite. <laughs> You'll believe it once you do it. And so I read these words of Paul. It's like, no, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Lord, give me strength. Lord, when the opportunity presents itself, give me the courage to speak the gospels, to speak the truth. And Paul gives two reasons why he's not ashamed. The first is, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. And that word power, dunamis, it's sort of gotten overplayed in our Christian culture today. That, oh, that's where dynamite came from, which dynamite came long after Paul wrote this. I think that the more appropriate term here is dynamic that the dynamic of God, the gospel is so dynamic and it has a way to reach out and to touch a person that, in a way that only God can. It's the power of God for salvation. I think it's J. Vernon McGee that says the, the greatest miracle he's ever read about was that of a changed life. To see a, a drunken person move to sobriety and not because of good works, but because the, the changed and redeemed heart of an individual to see the in, empowering of the Holy Spirit to move a person from this place to this place. That's the dynamic of God, that God's spirit is uniquely working in each one of our lives, crafted in a way that is that is perfect for us. And he says, I'm not ashamed of it, for it's the power of God for salvation. And then he goes on to say, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written. But the righteous man shall live by faith. This verse, this phrase that he quotes from Habakkuk 2.4 of God speaking to Habakkuk has been used to so many guys. The most of all is uh, Martin Luther who read this. And, and when we first started Romans, I quoted this, this what Martin Luther said. That when he read this verse, it used to anger him because he read it as the truth that God is righteous and he's righteous in his condemning sinners. But then when he realized that it was that through faith that the condemned person is now righteous before God because God declares him to be righteous, which simply means right standing. Man, today we sang that song. It was in my notes. I always now I feel like guilty writing notes because Rick always teased me. He's like, "Man, you've been studying all week. You'll be fine." But he always chuckles. So every time I like try to write little notes that comes to me, but that song of Martin Luther, 
man. Uh, no, not Martin Luther. It was somebody. It wasn't Martin Luther. Uh, when sees like a rumble, this guy was a businessman. All of his family died in the Atlantic. And then he goes back. And as he's over the spot where his whole family perished, he wrote that song. And there was that one line that I could barely sing. T- tears are welling up in my eyes. And speaking of the sin, he says, it is nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. How can we as believers not cry? Why in the world would God do that for us? That he would take my sin, that it would be nailed to, to Christ. And it would no longer be my burden. That I'm declared right before God. I'm declared holy. Not because of my works, but because of Christ's work that have been, has been imputed to my, my righteousness account. It has nothing to do with what I've done. And this is powerful. So I'm right on time. We're concluding. I knew I wouldn't have a lot of time. I could go for a long time right now. I want you to turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And as I look at this introdu- these three verses, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, is sort of, so what? This is Paul's life. So he's under obligation to the Greeks and barbarians. So what? He, he's eager to preach those in to, to Rome. So what? Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. So what about me? What about you who say you follow Christ? What does it have to do with you? And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 14, is Paul sort of, I don't want to say regurgitating, but he's repackaging the truth of his conviction, God inspired to what it means to us as followers of Christ. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, this is what he says. For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. The first thing is that we who love Christ and know Christ as Savior, we're no longer con- consumed and compelled by our narcissism, our, uh, our love for ourself and doing what's best for us. But we're told that it's the love of Christ. And he lays out the gospel. This is the gospel. One who died for all, therefore all died. When we're baptized, we're baptized into his death. That when we go underwater, it's symbolic of our old life in sin. And he says, and then when we come up, we have this new life. So that when we live, those who follow Christ, we no longer live for ourselves. But we live for the one who bought us. He goes on to say, Verse 16, therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know him in this way no longer. How do we see Christ or how do we see others when you interact with people in your day to day life? Normally, we judge and evaluate somebody based on our own feelings for them. But the scriptures tell us that we as Christians are supposed to evaluate others based on how Christ sees them. And Christ died for just who's the most annoying person in your life that you just can't stand. Don't answer that out loud. But that person, Jesus on the cross died for that person. 
God is working to bring to Christ. That person God wants to redeem. And so we're supposed to view that person through his eyes. And you know, sanctity, human life. I don't say this lightly. This issue is right up there. It is on the same scale of the Holocaust. And normally I go through the, the, all the stats, but for some reason, instead of addressing the whole what abortion is, the thing that I've been overwhelmed with is to focus on love. Not to go tisk 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 to the person who had the abortion or the husband who tried to tell his wife to get an abortion. I tell you, as a man who didn't stand up for my child that would be executed, man, the guilt and the shame and the, the agony of that. We live in a culture where nobody knows love. When I hear these videos of these girls that were patients at alternatives, when I walk into the center of alternatives, the thing that's always stood out to me is people always talk about the love that they felt there. They've never experienced love, true love. Half of these girls, maybe more than that, are in the situation they're in because they've never experienced love and they're trying to find love. And guys, we're dogs. My unrepentant, my unchanged heart. Guys say, oh, I love you, but do this for me. They're seeking love. And then they find themselves in this unwanted pregnancy. And then there's so fear because their parents, if they're even in their home, they don't think that they'd love them in a way and they don't know what to do. They can't turn to their parents because what little love they feel from their parents, their parents are going to reject them even more. Where can they go? They can't go anywhere. And then these girls find their way into this, those little walls at alternatives on the corner. And they meet people like Karen. And there's just this warm spirit. And why am I blanking on the girl at the front desk? Norma. Sweet, sweet person in English and Spanish. I try to talk to her in Spanish more, more than in English. But we, she helps me along. But there's just love. And these girls who are so afraid... sure there's all the talk about life and what it is but really the impact is you know what you're loved you're safe here we'll love you no matter what you do even if you have that abortion we're here for you and i think that we in the church we need to work on love to that single girl who's faced with this unwanted pregnancy not to judge her or to to, to be loving on the outside, but when in your heart you're saying, whatever the reason is. And even more so to the single mom who has kids that are four and two and they're all out of control and she's all alone. Oh, those kids are so annoying. They're, they're crying during church. Can't we just whisk them out? No. The love of Christ says this and this lady did the right thing. That in the midst of her wrong decision that she's, she's struggling with, she made the choice for life. Let's come alongside her and love her and help her go through this very difficult thing. I don't know how single moms do it. Single 16-year-olds, how do they do it? I'm 38 with three kids and a wife and a good job. And it's hard. I can't imagine being 16 
lugging around a child. How do you do it? We should train our young boys. And if, listen, there's a mom that had a decision. She had a baby. She's not bruised fruit that she's no longer married, marryable, if that's a word. We need to love. We need to change the way we view people. We need to, the love that Christ has showed us because you know what? That sin that you carried was just as vile in God's eyes. And he forgave you. And when you experience this love, it changes how you, you think and you feel. He goes on, verse 18, now all these things are from God who reconciled us. Highlight that word reconciled. It's going to come up five more times. So we no longer view the world through our own eyes. We view it through Christ's eyes, through God's eyes, his great love. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. We who sinned and fall short, fell short of the glory of God. Those of us who, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And through his great gift, reconciled us to him. He then gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Man, that's humbling. That is humbling. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed us to the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on your behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's it. That's exactly what Paul says in Romans 1. Verse 21, that he who knew no sin, Jesus on the cross, took our sin, the whole world's sin. He was innocent, yet he took the weight of the sin. He was the perfect lamb that went to the slaughter, that our sins might be paid for. And the reason that he did it is that through faith that we would be declared right before God, that our sin no longer stained us. And then he goes on to say, since you've been reconciled to God... God now's handed the keys over to you. What's he thinking? What's he thinking? He then says, you've been reconciled to me. Here are the keys to the car. It's your job now. You have this ministry of reconciliation. What I did for you. I gave you, Gunner, something far greater than Folex. I gave you something that made you white as snow. I got to go back to that line. Your sin is nailed to the cross. You bear it no more. Now go out and share that love with others. And so if you're sitting here today and you haven't received this love of Christ, I'd encourage you to believe with your heart. Just That's it. That's what being a Christian is. I believe it. And at that moment, the spirit seals us. And that for those of us who have received this great gift, may the Lord help us to display his love, to be his ambassadors. May he convict us when our sin bubbles up in our hearts and we judge those who are apart from Christ. And Father, we thank you again. We praise you, Lord, for this wonderful gift of Jesus. Father, I pray for those who are here now or may be listening to the recording that haven't come to know you as Savior. Father, I pray that you would help them to make the steps to believe in Christ, the Messiah. To know that his work on the cross was sufficient. Father, I pray that you would open the eyes of our heart, Lord, 
that we would come to understand the great cost that was put forth on the cross for our sin. Lord, that we would get a glimpse of the magnitude of your love for us. Father, we ask that you would fill our hearts with love. Lord, we confess our sin of being judgmental, being critical of others. Father, we pray that your spirit would so overwhelm us that you would help us to be people that reflect your glory, your love, your mercifulness. Father, we submit ourselves to you. We thank you, Lord, and we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.